uh, there are some times that some things just need to be celebrated. And I have a, a couple pictures around our house and in my office that I think really uh, represent uh, celebration to me. And the, the first one is, is this picture. Uh, it's uh, from uh, December 27th, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, my wife and I, Cheryl, we were married in a middle school auditorium. The church I was serving at at the time uh, was meeting in this middle school auditorium. And to my knowledge, because we had to pull some strings to make it happen, to my knowledge, it is the only wedding that had ever been and will ever be in this auditorium. Uh, kind of a, a neat thing for us. And, and we got married that day. And I know you'll find this shocking, but we decided to have our wedding reception uh, on the campus of Michigan State University. Uh, and uh, we'd, we'd had a, a really, really nice uh, church service. And whenever you hear about the bride uh, crying, every picture of me is like the ugly cry, you, you know, and, and you'll never see any of those. Uh, th those are only going to be in our house. But uh, we, we did the ceremony. We did the pictures. My best man, my cousin, drove us over to this place called the Kellogg Center on the campus of Michigan State University. And this picture is of us walking in. And Cheryl will tell you, uh, one of her... We, don't, we haven't changed at all, have we, right? I'm a little more gray up in this area. But anyway, um, Cheryl will tell you that one of her memories of that day was walking in uh, to, the, to the place we were going to do the reception. Someone said, oh, there's the bride. And Cheryl said, where? Where's the bride? So, oh, wait, I'm the bride, right? Um, and uh, I, I just remember walking in that day, and they snapped that shot, and we walked in. Uh, to this room full of a couple hundred people that we really, uh, at the time, loved the absolute most. And uh, the place was all decked out with Christmas lights because it was two days after Christmas. There were flowers everywhere, and we just walked in ready to celebrate. Uh, the second picture I want to show you is this one, because I remember this day, too, uh, that, that you had, I know, right? Um, and uh, you, you had all been a part of our journey uh, to, to have children, and we were going through this adoption process, and you were praying for us, you were encouraging us, and uh, one day we got the phone call that our son had been born uh, in Lincoln. We went over there to meet him for the first time, uh, being protective parents. We didn't, uh, Cheryl and Sam didn't come to church for a while. We ended up taking him to Michigan for a little bit to see uh, grandparents and family and all that, and we drove from Michigan uh, straight to this parking lot here, and uh, we walked in, this is right after we had walked in uh, for the biggest baby shower I've ever seen in my life. Um, and, and a lot of you were there and uh, uh, you would not recognize that little guy now, but I'm actually wearing that same shirt, which is weird. Um, so, um, but I just noticed that when I looked up, I said, that looks, yeah, huh, okay, anyway. Uh, and, and so, so some things just need to be celebrated, and that's, uh, that's, where, that's where we are uh, in our story of Revelation. Thank goodness, right? We, we've come through a lot of the difficult stuff, and in Revelation 19, uh, we're, we're going to see that some things just need to be celebrated. If you remember where we've been the last couple weeks, God, uh, last week, kind of rained down his wrath on this city called Babylon. We don't know what it's actually going to be called in the last days, but this city that, that Satan kind of used to blaspheme God's name, to, to slander God's name, and to persecute the people of God, this city that, that will be in the last days has done all of this evil. And, and there comes this point where God has enough, he rains down his wrath, and the city of Babylon falls. It is destroyed. And we begin to see this time of celebration. And I want to show you this song in Revelation 19 
uh, to use the old kind of hymn language, there's three stanzas uh, to this song. And I, I wanna study them with you because at the end of this praise session, the most amazing thing's gonna happen. I can't wait to show it for you, but for, uh, to show it to you. But first I wanna show you uh, what these angels and people in heaven are, are praising God for. The first is found in verses one through four. After I heard what sounded like, after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting hallelujah, meaning praise to the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute, talking about this city, who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants and again they shouted hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and, and ever. I, I love that in this first kind of verse of this song, they begin talking about the authority of God. That salvation, they say, salvation belongs to our God. See, when it comes to your relationship with God, the person that you should be most concerned about what they think about your relationship with God is not your neighbor. It's not the person down the pew or down the street. It's not even your pastor. Sometimes we can fall into this habit of, what do they think about me? Do they think I'm a good Christian? Do they think I'm walking the way I should? No, this text teaches us the person you should be most concerned about how they feel about your salvation is God himself. Because salvation, your salvation belongs to God. As a matter of fact, we read in the book of Revelation that there is a book of life and it is in the hand of God himself. Salvation belongs to him. Glory and power, they go on to say, belong to him. That the city of Babylon has just been destroyed. Considered at one point, uh, the book of Revelation says, to be one of the most powerful cities in the world. It It will be in the future, the most powerful city in the world. And God has just rained down his wrath and absolutely destroyed it. This was a place you could be entertained, a place you could work, a place where you could get rich in this city. It was a place where a lot of people wanted to get married because it was so beautiful. It was glorious, it was powerful, and God just destroyed it. Why? because glory and power belong to him. And he is more glorious, and he is more powerful, and he, he, is, he is greater than this city in, in the book of Revelation. We must remember this whenever we're, whenever we're tempted to be scared or intimidated by the powers of this world, uh, death or sin or disease or even human authorities. We, we must always remember that this text teaches us God is more powerful. God is more powerful. When we face huge odds, when when we don't know our future, we must remember that God is more powerful than all of it. And because salvation belongs to him and because glory and power belong to him, we should take great solace in what this verse goes on to say, and it's this, that just and true are his judgments. Right? Salvation belongs to him, glory and power belong to him, and just and true are his judgments. That when you stand before God on the judgment day, and we will all stand before God on the judgment day, God will be just. And because we know God is a God of justice, and because we know that the Bible says the wages of our sin is death, we, we should understand the, the good news of the gospel at an even deeper level. The good news teaches that God is just, our sins are deserving of death, but God allowed his son Jesus to go to the cross to take your place, and that is good news indeed. That, that when you stand before the judgment seat of God and you are able to go into heaven a- after you die, it will not be because God is looking past your sin. Right? God doesn't just turn a blind eye to the sin of the Christian. God has allowed his son Jesus to pay the price for your sin. The wages of your sin is death and Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. 
And if you, if you don't think that's good news, I don't know how to preach any better than that, right? That, that is good news, that Jesus Christ took our place. So the judgment and justice of God is satisfied and we are able to be forgiven. Let me show you the second song, all right? The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, amen, hallelujah. And then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, both great and small. So in the second verse of this song, we see that God offers an invitation for people to come to his throne and worship him. It is an invitation for you through the blood of Jesus to come to the very throne room of God and worship him. It is an invitation to worship. Now, I don't think it's gonna surprise anybody that when you look at the church nationally and you look at the church historically, that one of the most controversial issues in the church has been the issue of worship. Does that surprise anybody, right? That churches have fought over this issue. Churches have split over this issue. It truly has become a contentious issue. And much of the contention has been over musical preference when it comes to our worship. And I understand that. I have uh, musical preferences and so do you. We, we all do. So I, under, I understand that controversy. But here's why I say it's a musical preference issue. Because the contemporary song, How Great Is Our God, and the, the old hymn, how great thou art, essentially teach the same thing theologically. How great is our God, how great thou art. They teach the same thing theologically, but they arise in people very different reactions depending on how you were raised musically in church, what stirs up your heart for God musically. You'll have very different reactions to those two music, even though they teach the same thing theologically because we all have musical preferences. And so because we all have musical preferences, we find ourselves asking questions like this on the way home from church. Did you like the music today? Did the music minister to me today? Thanks, Brad. Um, did I like the song selection today? And don't mishear me. Please don't mishear me. It is perfectly legit to have a musical preference, but my musical preference must never keep me from worshiping. You see, one of the things I love about this text is that God is on the throne in this text. You know why God's on the throne? Because God is the one who should be worshiped. God is the one who should be pleased with our worship. God is on the throne. I never want to see us as a church replace God on the throne with me or you on the throne. Where we begin to have conversations like, was I pleased with today's worship? Did I like today's worship? Did today's worship satisfy me? You know, you know the question we should be asked, is God pleased with the worship? Does God, did God, did those songs glorify and magnify him? Was our praise worthy of who he is? You see, we are invited into the throne room of God to worship him. It is an amazing honor. We must never make it about ourselves. Worship should always be about and fully always be about the God of the universe. And you know what the text says? Actually keeps this in check. The text says what keeps this in check is a awe and reverence for God. It says all you who fear him come to the throne and worship him. Because when you have an awe and a reverence for God and you understand that this is the God that created the sun and the moon and the stars, this is the God who parted the Red Sea, this is the God who gave up his son for our salvation, when you understand who God is and what he's about, you wouldn't dare make worship all about you. 
right? You wouldn't dare. It would be fully and completely all about him because he is on the throne and he is worthy of it. And so in those last days, we are going to be invited in to the throne room of God to, to worship him. Let's make sure it always stays all about him. The third song, verses six through eight. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing water and like peals of thunder shouting hallelujah. For the Lord Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. For lin and linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. I love this image of the wedding. Let me tell you how a wedding would work in the first century. In the first century, when you were gonna marry somebody, you were first of all betrothed. Now you may be tempted to think that this is like an engagement. It's actually not exactly like an engagement. A betrothal was you were fully and wholly committed to this person. You were considered legally betrothed to them, essentially married to them without the physical act that comes with marriage. So, so you were wholly and completely committed to this person. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to break off a betrothal, there was actually a legal process that you had to go through to break a betrothal. That's how committed you were to each other. You see this in the birth of Christ story, that Joseph is pledged or betrothed to, be married, to, 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 be, to marry Mary, and when he finds out that she's pregnant, he has a mind to divorce her quietly. They are betrothed. He's gonna have to go through a legal process to end the relationship with her, but going, there comes this time in the first century marriage ritual, there comes this time where the groom would gather his friends together and they would walk to the bride's house and she wouldn't necessarily know it was coming. He would walk to the bride's house and he would knock on her door and she would open the door and he would take her hand and he would walk her to the wedding feast. This is the image Jesus chooses to use. Right now, when it comes to Jesus Christ, we are in a period of betrothal. Right? We are essentially married to him. We are in a, a, a strong, committed relationship with Jesus Christ. There is going to come a day when Jesus is going to knock at the door. And he is going to come, and he is going to take your hand, and he is going to walk you into the wedding feast of the Lamb. That is good news. That is good news. And, and, when, and when he knocks, and, and when he comes, none of us knows, but that is the imagery of this text. And listen, there are many images I love about heaven. I, I love the streets of gold. I think it's cool that we really, really honor and, and care about gold and it's like pavers in heaven, right? I think that's kind of cool. Uh, I love the choirs of angels and just how they're described as the sound of rushing waves, how, how loud the choir of angels is, is going to be. I think thinking about our new bodies is kind of interesting, you know, because you got Jesus walking through walls and stuff. I, I think it's kind of interesting to think about that. But my favorite image in, in, in heaven, this will be a no surprise to you, is the wedding feast. Um, I love me a good feast, right? Love me a good feast. But it's not just because I love food. I, I think it is this beautiful image of the groom coming for his bride. Uh, we, were, we were just at a wedding feast. Uh, we were at a couple wedding feasts the last couple weeks. And uh, I, I, it's one of my favorite things to do. You know, we're at the wedding reception and we're all gathered around a table, us and uh, some of our friends, and we're laughing and we're joking and we're celebrating the union between this man and this woman. And that's really a great image of heaven is that we are gonna be gathered together. Your family and friends that have accepted Christ are gonna be there. You're gonna be gathered together celebrating the, the wedding feast of the Lamb. So we celebrated our marriage, like I said, 10 years ago. And uh, one of my vivid memories 
uh, was the getting ready process for, for the wedding. Uh, so I remember the cake testing, the cake tasting. Awesome dad, all right? You go and they give you cake for free, and you know, it's, it's awesome, all right? Not a lot of other places do that. Uh, I remember the food tasting. I remember touring the facility. I remember planning and preparing where we were gonna go for our, our honeymoon. I remember looking at invitations, less fun than the cake. All right? I, remember, I remember all of this, but the whole idea of it is to make sure you're ready, and that's what this text would challenge us to do. It says, are you ready? Are you ready for that day that the groom is gonna come receive his bride? And I love this text because this text really describes what the Bible teaches about this very, very well that um, when it talks about getting ready. Because on one hand in this text, you see the language that the bride has made herself ready. And in another way you see in this text that the bride has been made ready. So on one hand, she's making herself ready, and on another hand, she's been made ready. And both of these elements are in the Christian message. That when you express your faith in Jesus Christ, and you put your joy and your hope in him for your salvation, the Bible says that in that moment, God, through his son Jesus, justifies you. That in that moment, the kind of big Bible word, but in that moment that you are justified, you are forgiven, you receive grace, in that moment now, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, God sees you just as if you'd never sinned. And like any good gift, salvation is a gift. You cannot earn a gift. You can't be good enough to receive a gift. You you, you You just have to receive it through faith. You just have to allow God through faith to give you this gift of justification. And in this way, we are made ready for the return of Jesus, right? So if you've expressed your faith in Jesus Christ, if he has justified you and forgiven your sin, in that way, you have already been made ready for his return. Now, if you are a Christian, the Bible talks a lot about us getting ourselves ready, that through the power of the Holy Spirit and through some effort on our own, that we are constantly preparing and making ourselves ready for the return of the, of the bridegroom. So the Bible would talk about things like uh, growing, spending time with Jesus, so your love for him grows as, as his return comes close. The Bible would talk about us putting down certain sins that are gonna distract us and move us away from Jesus. The Bible would talk about growing in our love for each other because I hate to burst your bubble, you're not gonna be the only one in heaven. You've got to learn to love other people, right? We've gotta learn to get along, and we've gotta learn to love. And so the Bible talks about putting effort into that, that when the bridegroom returns, I I wanna be at my maximal love for other people, right? So that I can can be ready to love people for all of of eternity. And that's really the question of this song. Am I ready for his return? Have I, if I'm not a Christian, have I expressed my faith in Jesus? Because if you haven't, you need to express your faith in Jesus. Make him the Lord of your life. Allow him as a free gift. Allow him to justify you. Allow him to get you ready. And then if you are a Christian, to begin to ask the Holy Spirit, how do you want me to prepare? Do I need to grow my love for people? Do do I need to grow my love for Jesus? what, What changes do I need to make to be ready? And so you see this song, verses one, two, and three, and they're praising, and they're praising, and they're praising, and it's increasing, and it's getting louder, and louder, and louder, and finally, the most amazing thing happens, right right in the middle of this song, verses 11 through 16. I saw heaven standing open, or I saw heaven open up, and there before 
me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which he's going to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter, and he treads the press of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh was a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's a worship service. Right? When you got the worship leader up front, he's like, all right, we're going to sing the first three verses of this hymn. All right, everybody sing as loud as you can. Verse one, you know, God is great, God is good. Verse two, you know, the welcome to the bridegroom of the lamb. You know, verse three, you're, you're, you're singing. It's getting louder and louder and louder. And then the heavens open up. That is a good worship service. That's a good worship service. The, the heavens open up and Jesus Christ returns. We have been waiting for this moment in Revelation. We have been finding ourselves wondering, what is God doing? Why is he taking the actions that he's taking? Why is he doing what he's doing? What, what, what is his decision-making process here? And at times it has been a mystery as it should be. And finally, here in Revelation, we get to see the reason for it all, that God has been paving the way for his son to return. And can I tell you about his son this morning? Verse 14 tells us his name. Verse 14 tells us that he goes by the name Faithful and True. That we often talk about being faithful to Jesus. We often talk about staying true to Jesus. Today, I want to remind you and I want to encourage you that Jesus will remain faithful to you. Yes, you should remain faithful to him. Yes, you should stay true to him. But never, ever forget, his name is faithful. His name is true. And, and Jesus will stay faithful to you. His words are true. When the Bible says Jesus Christ will forgive you, he will. When the Bible says that Jesus Christ will always be with you, he will. When the Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God will empower you to overcome any trial or tribulation you face, he will. When the Bible says that, that uh, he knows the best way to live, he does. And when the Bible says that he will return someday for his bride, you can rest assured he will. His name is faithful. His name is true. And he will keep his promises. Not some of them, not a few of them. He will keep all of them. He is faithful and true. And it is a good name, but it is not his only name in this text. We, we are told later on that Jesus has a tattoo. <gasps> all right, just hold on for a minute. All right. He has a tattoo. No, all right, he does. All right. It's okay. He's Jesus. It's okay. All right. And here's what his tattoo says. It is on his thigh and it says, he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. That's a good tattoo. It's a good tattoo. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. That many throughout history, human history, have believed that they were the king of kings, that they had ultimate power and ultimate control. Many of the Caesars believed this. Did you know in the first century, they passed a law in all of Rome's occupied nations that if you were in the marketplace and came, someone came up to you and says, Caesar is Lord, you were legally obligated to, to say back to them, Caesar is Lord indeed. And on this day, 
those kings and those Caesars will quake as they realize that they are not the king of kings. They are not the Lord of lords. Jesus Christ is. And so I don't know what you're facing today, but here's what I want you to know. Cancer is not the king of kings. Hardship is not the king of kings. Economic difficulty is not the king of kings. Divorce is not the king of kings. Your boss, praise God, is not the king of kings. Jesus Christ is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords, and all power and authority are his. That's a good name, but it is not his only name. So we go on to read in verse 13 that one of Jesus' names is he is the word of God. That to the Jewish person living in the first century, the word of God was everything. They wanted to obey this thing fully. They just couldn't. And so God sent us, the word became flesh. He made his dwelling among us. And Jesus stands for us as an example of what it means to obey this thing fully. And part of why God sent us in living color, what was written in print, part of why God sent us that living color image was so that the religious folks that had so deceived themselves into believing they were righteous could see a living example of what it means to be righteous and realize they're not. And that they would turn to God and turn to Jesus for their salvation. The other thing it does is it gives us a way to the Father. That Jesus does for us as the word. Jesus did for you what you could never do. You could never obey this thing fully. I could never obey this fully. Now as Christians, we give our lives to trying. But you could never obey this thing fully. And so Jesus steps in for you 2,000 years ago. and He says, let me do it for you. Let me be your substitute. Let me do what you could never do. And so our hope is in him as he stands for us as the word of God. And that is a good name. It's a good name, but it is not his only name. Verse 12 shows us, and this is my, one of my favorite names of Jesus. Verse 12 shows us that he goes by a name that only he knows. There is much about Jesus you can understand There is much, but he is so big and so glorious. There are parts of his character that no one understands but he himself. And you thought your wife was complicated. (laughs) Right? You thought your wife was complicated. There are parts of Jesus. He goes by a name that no one knows but he himself. You imagine walking up to Jesus. "Hey, Hey, what's your name? Only I know. Only I know. You can call me Jesus, but only I, there are parts of me that only I know. And we live in this culture today that says to accept it all, I have to understand it all. And when it comes to God, I would say if you can understand it all, reject it. You do not want a God you can understand fully. You don't. You don't. Because that is a God crafted in your own image you do not want a God you can, that, that you can understand everything about him. You want a God that is bigger than you. You want a God that is more powerful than you. You want a God who goes by a name that only he knows and that there are parts of his character you could never understand and that is a good thing because you are a human being and he is the God of the universe. And so he has this name that only he knows. Now let me show you in verse 13 how he's dressed. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood to remind us of his role as a savior. 
In verse 15, he judges and rules the world, reminding us of his role as a judge. As the chapter ends in verse 19, we, we, we see his power on display again as the beast and the kings of the earth. All right, I mean, we just read the text, all right? So Jesus is returning. There's fire in his eyes. There's sword in his mouth. All power and all authority are his. And the beast and the kings of the earth get together. They say, we're going to attack Jesus. We're going to take him into custody, right? We're going to take him into custody. Right you are, right? Right you are. And so they, they attack, the, they, they try to take Jesus into custody. The beast is captured in verse 20. The false prophet is captured right after that. They are thrown into the lake of fire and the rest of the soldiers are killed. This now, if you're keeping score uh, of the un- unholy trinity that we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, the, the beast of the earth, the beast of the sea, and, and Satan, this kind of unholy trinity of, of evil, basically. Now only Satan stands, and that's just going to be for the one more chapter, right? Um, we'll talk about that more in a few weeks, but today, uh, I just want you to see Jesus in his glory today. That, that was my goal of today. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He, he goes by a name that only he knows. He saves, he judges, he is powerful, he is great, he is faithful, he is true. He is the word of God. We worship him and him alone. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you uh, for Jesus and the hope that he gives us. God, when we see him in his glory, when we see him in his majesty in these texts like the book of Revelation, Um, We wouldn't dare to make life about anything but him. We wouldn't dare to make worship about anything but him. We we wouldn't dare to, to in our own minds, to remove him by the throne and, and remove him from the throne and replace him with ourselves. We wouldn't dare to do that because he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords and all power and honor and glory belong to him forever and ever. Amen. Will you stand with me?